to see you and worship with us here this morning. Uh, we're super glad you're with us here today. My name is Scott. I'm a lead pastor here at First Christian. We uh, want to continue to, time, to, to engage in our time of worship this morning um, with um, some time in the Word. Um, so I want you to be ready for that with me in Luke, the tenth chapter. We're going to be spending our time there in Luke chapter 10, uh, carrying on this summer series called Risk. Um, if you need um, some notes for taking uh, sermon, some space for taking sermon notes and uh, study questions for what we are doing here, those are coming down the aisle. Um, we have space in the back of the uh, program here for you to take some notes. And these questions at the bottom relate to how we do our small groups, our life groups. Um, the second of our seven habits is to uh, connect in a life group. I lied, the third. Some of you all out there going, you're wrong, Scott. You're right, I'm wrong. It's the third of our seven habits to um, connect in a life group. The second is serve on a team. You'd think I know those. I do. Um, so our life group questions are there for you. Um, you're going to want to spend some time with us, especially in the first four verses of Luke 10. We've got a lot of meaty stuff for us today. If you need a Bible, um, just go ahead and put your hand up. Guest services peeps will uh, hook you up. Before we jump in, uh, I want to mention that last week our Board of Elders and Deacons verified um, the salary package uh, unanimously for um, a new kids director we're hiring. His name is Ben Weaver. Um, Ben's going to be here today after both services for a meet and greet down in the student center um, downstairs. So if you want to meet Ben, they're going to be with us. Um, I think we have a picture of Ben in theory to uh, put up on screen for you here. That's Ben on the left there. Uh, that's his uh, wife as of September 2018, so not quite, but going to be. Um, they're getting married um, this fall. She is a Milligan grad. She is a nurse. He is going to be our kids' director. Um, cute youngsters there. Um, so make sure you get a chance to uh, go by and meet them downstairs. Um, actually, I lied. Anna is not with us today. Um, she is uh, with her sister in Baltimore, uh, so Ben will be here. Um, for a little meet and greet downstairs uh, immediately following the service. Uh, I want to also make sure you're making plans. This is on uh, somewhere, yes, on Get Connected here. Um, we are having what we're calling the Family Circus Celebration, and that is um, something like what we've done the last couple summers. It's just a fun time uh, where everybody can come right after second service out in our uh, parking lot. We're going to have food trucks and games and fun things, and I'll cut the sermon short so that we'll have plenty of time for uh, getting out and having some fun together. That's, um, that's a cool little graphic there. Good job, y'all, with FCC. So, I'm a little verklempt today. I, I don't know if you know that word. It's from Saturday Night Live. Um, like I'm stumbling all over my words, and I'm a gifted with words guy. Here's why. Here's why. Um, Luke 10 that we're going to study today, this is super heavy stuff today. So I just want to forewarn you. That's why I'm a little like, what, what am I saying next? I know full well what I'm going to say in Luke 10. But I'm a little nervous about it, to be honest. Because this is a dividing line we're talking about today. It's a dividing line of either being about the mission of Jesus or the mission of you. It's just as simple as that, okay? So I just want to tell you up front, that's why I'm a little like, nervousy today. So um, just to forewarn you, if you're a first timer today, it's not always this heavy and crazy, although last week was pretty heavy, wasn't it? 
I'm glad you all could laugh about that. Because uh, I felt that way last week, too. Man, this risk series is... We're going to do, like, happiness and joy next. Uh, actually, there's a great book by Randy Alcorn. If you're looking for some happiness, it's a great, big, huge book called Happiness by a man named Randy Alcorn that I've just started reading. So maybe we'll do that next. I don't know. Um, let's read together Luke 10. We're going to read all 12 verses, 1 through 12. Uh, but we're just going to get through the first four because there's, there's too much good meat for us there. We'll read together and then we'll pray. It says this, Luke 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him two by two into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to your feet, to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Let's pray, friends. Lord God, we have gathered today um, as your people to sing your praises and to acknowledge that you alone are the object worthy of our worship and our praise because you are holy and altogether good. And Lord, from that inner character of your goodness and your perfections and your holiness, you sought uh, to give yourself to us uh, when we were in rebellion against you. So Lord, we wouldn't want to live lives. We want to live lives that reflect your goodness to us. So, Father, teach us from your word today. Teach us from the examples uh, of those who have gone before. Give us strength and courage uh, to say yes to your mission for our lives and to reject um, all the various missions um, that tempt us to make this, this earth and what we call our resources about our own mission. Lord, give us strength and courage and faith uh, so that you will meet um, our faithfulness with your perfect plan and that you will do through us what only you can do. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, so here's what we say. We say things like, I believe I will be happier 
if I eat less bad-for-me food and more good-for-me food. That's what we say. But here's the truth about at least what I believe. (laughs) Uh, I believe that I will be happier if I eat too much. I actually believe that I, if I eat more than I know I should eat, I will be happier. While I know I will be happier if I ate fewer cookies and chips and drank less vanilla cream soda, praise Jesus. (laughs) I believe I would be happier if I didn't weigh 25 pounds more than I should, right? But the truth is this. I actually believe I would enjoy life more by eating more cookies and more chips and drinking more vanilla cream soda, praise Jesus. And I do not actually believe that I would be happier eating less bad-for-me food and more good-for-me food. Which is to say (laughs) that what we hold to be true is best determined by looking at our actions rather than our claims. Right? In our cogent moments, we know that that's how it actually works. What we believe is true about the world, what we actually believe is true about the world, is best determined by assessing our behavior rather than our purported beliefs. So if that is true, if that is true, a statistic I can't get out of my head for many years now, if that is true, that what we actually believe is demonstrated by our behavior than what we say, then the statistic that shows that only 5% of Christians, only 5% of self-proclaimed Christians have led a single soul to Christ is evidence that we don't truly believe that the souls of others around us are worth our sacrifice. Let it simmer. When it comes to the dissonance between the stated beliefs of Christians and the actual behavior of Christians... There is no more stark difference between what we say about caring for the souls of others and what we actually do about the souls of others. The evidence, honestly, is crystal clear in every study you can possibly look up that we only superficially believe in the Great Commission to make disciples. Do your own study. Have at it. Please. Here's how silly all this is. (laughs) We will risk our lives jumping out of a plane in the hopes that a little cord and some fabric will keep us safe just for a temporary high, right? Like we'll risk that. But we are unwilling to risk saying, Jack about the gospel to a single person in our lives, and we certainly can't be bothered to learn a new and a better way of making disciples 
because it puts us in this tension of risking offense in a way that feels like a threat to our personal safety. (laughs) Something is drastically wrong with us. We are weak and we are full of fear. And we desperately, desperately need to learn to follow Jesus to a cross on which we die to our personal mission of safety and earthly self-sufficiency that Jesus himself promises is not going to last anyway. I told you it was going to be heavy. We have, in in fact, we are actually quite good at at perverting the mission of Jesus into our personal mission of earthly safety and security and self-sufficiency, which I promise you, according to him, isn't going to last anyway. I believe that it's Bible, and we're going to look at this today, that Jesus teaches that risk is inherent to Christian mission. If you don't believe that, you're not reading the same Bible. Risk is inherent to Christian mission. If there's no risk, you're not on mission. This doesn't mean, parenthetically, this doesn't mean you can't know joy, that you can't experience happiness this side of heaven. Those are not mutually exclusive. (laughs) Risk for the mission and joy and happiness. In fact, they're more tied together than you know and than you fear, than we know and fear. This doesn't mean, risking for the mission doesn't mean you can't experience good things. It doesn't mean you can't experience laughter. It doesn't mean there's no fun in the Christian life. We're a church that lasts together. But I have searched the scriptures in vain for a place that describes Christian mission as a comfort and a safety in earthly terms. Risk is inherent to Christian mission. If there is no risk in your life, you're not on mission. So the basic question today is this. It's going to be real simple today. (laughs) Whose mission are you actually on? Whose mission are you on? Are you on Jesus' mission? Or are you on your own mission, disguised as his, and wrapped in Jesus' language? Are you on Jesus' mission? Or are you on your own mission that is actually just disguised as his and wrapped in nice Jesus language. This is a germane question for us today because as Jesus is commissioning some of his followers here, he gives some diagnostic tools for us, some tests, some questions to ask for ourselves that are from the text here um, that are basically, am I on Jesus' mission or am I really on my mission disguised as his and wrapped in Jesus' language? Because uh, you can talk a good game Uh, But the fruit is the proof in the pudding, right? So (laughs) welcome to First Christian Church uh, where we gather in order to scatter. All right. We're gathered in order to leave this place and to be missionaries. We're not here to play church. We're here to learn to be church. 
And we've all experienced just way too much of play church. Like, I don't know about you, but I approach studying this word like I want to see what this thing does to me through Jesus' spirit. And, and if it doesn't bear fruit in me, there's something I'm not reading right in this. Don't you want to be a part of a community of faith where you see people come to Jesus like, and it's the norm? <laughs> or are you content to read this thing superficially and be like, eh, not going to change me, it's cool. Sign of your own mission right there. That's a sign of your own mission. If you're reading this thing and it doesn't change you, it's a sign of being on your own mission. This is not on script, so let's get back to the... Let's get back to Luke 10. Let's start by uh, setting up the context here um, behind just the first two words we read those 12 verses earlier, and we're just going to spend some time in the first four because there's a lot of meat in the first four verses there um, that will become diagnostic tools and questions for us. But I want to set the context behind the first two words uh, of Luke 10. It says this, after this. <laughs> Press pause. Um, we're going to spend some time here. In fact, we're going to spend some time in the first few phrases of verse 1. Because in very typical Luke fashion, he is saying a lot in just a few words. So you read after this, you may think, after what? Luke assumes we've been reading what he's been writing for the first nine chapters up to this, but we haven't been. We're jumping in at verse 10. So good question. After what? There are two things that just happened in chapter 9 that are important for us for how they set a trajectory for how we interpret Luke 10. So in Luke 9... Jesus has just sent out the original 12 disciples. We call them the apostles because they established the church. He just sent out the first 12, the original disciples, on a mission of proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God. Okay? And this number 12 is significant because it corresponds to the Old Testament 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus is sending out in the New Testament these 12 disciples, the original 12, to establish a new Israel, and to go proclaim Jesus as Messiah to the Jews especially. And that's the first thing we need to know. The second thing that's also in chapter 9 is that Jesus has just, as Luke said, set his face toward Jerusalem. There's a division in Luke where he's going around, he's building his disciples, he's preparing them for mission, and he's healing people and proclaiming the kingdom sort of by himself. And in Luke uh, chapter 9 and following, that sort of happens as something that he's no longer the only one doing, but others are now too. So he has set his face to Jerusalem because he knows that those who are following him are going to be able to carry on this mission. And he set his face toward Jerusalem because he knows his mission is going to end up in his death on the cross. So what's clear and important for us to understand from chapter 9, two things. What's clear and important for us to understand from chapter 9 is that Jesus has called the twelve together and he has set his face to Jerusalem. Which is to say, think about this, Jesus is making plans for his followers to carry on his mission after he is gone. He's dying soon on the cross and this mission has to continue after his death. So in Luke 10, where we jump in here, 
He extends his plans for carrying out mission through his followers. Listen, there's no other way this works. If you're sitting around waiting for someday when, you are the plan A that Jesus is setting up here. I hope you feel some weight of that. Because a whole bunch of people sitting around going, when the resources are right, when I know enough about Jesus, when I feel a comfort in skill, in my ability to, we can come up with excuses all day long. But Jesus is clear. I'm dying. This mission has to go on. Plan A is my people. And so he's setting up how this mission extends. Now, he's talking about us, right? He's just talked about the 12 disciples, sending them out. And now he's getting to the hoi polloi, the sort of normal, everyday, regular old boy, nothing special about us kind of people. And he's giving us instructions for mission. At least that's how we think and talk about this. But, but he is doing this in a way which says, no, you've got everything you need. <laughs> you know what you need to know. You've watched. You've seen. You've watched my miracles. You know the gospel. What more are you waiting for? Let's, let's do this. So he's setting this up. So after this, meaning after Jesus does those two things, sends out the twelve, sets his face toward the cross, it says the Lord appointed, meaning God's the power behind this. Every time Luke uses this word appointed, God and Jesus are the subject. They're the only ones that have the authority to appoint. So it says the Lord appointed, then it says 72 others. This may seem like sort of a benign, unimportant, nothing special about it phrase, 72 others. In typical Luke fashion, there are a thousand things we could say about this little phrase. We're going to say a couple of them, so press pause here. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others. Now, he's just appointed the 12. This is a group beyond the 12, the original 12 apostles. And Jesus is making a very important point in choosing 72, or as some of you may also have in your Bible, 70 which creates a little bit of a problem here. Uh, Depending on what version of the Bible you're reading, it says 70 or it says 72. Long and very nerdy story short, uh, a good case, a legitimate case, can be made for either number. And even though this sounds crazy, both are acceptable answers, even at the same time. I can explain all that later if you'd like to get into the nitty-gritty. It's really some cool Bible stuff. But we're going to use 70 slash 72, okay? So just think 70 slash 72 because both are acceptable answers, and it actually helps me remember all the nerdy nuances along the way. So here's the significance of this number. In appointing these others, remember the 12 in chapter 9, the 70 slash 72 others here that Jesus is appointing and sending out. In appointing these others beyond the apostles, Jesus is referring back to at least one and maybe even two specific ideas that come from the Old Testament attached to these numbers, 70 slash 72. So listen carefully, even though this is a little bit difficult to follow. In appointing 70 slash 72 others, Jesus is reminding us of what we call the table of nations in Genesis 10. 
The table of nations in Genesis 10 is a genealogy for how Noah's family spread throughout the whole earth after the flood. And in Genesis 10, there are 70 slash 72 nations listed. So the Jews began to use this number, 70 slash 72, to represent all the nations of the world out there. From the table of nations in Genesis 10, they began to consider the entire world out there, the Goyim, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, as the world out there. And so they would call this the 70 slash 72 nations. That's the first thing he's recalling us to. We'll come back to that in a second. The second thing is this. Numbers 11, Moses appoints 70 slash 72 elders to lead the 12 tribes of Israel. You can read it yourself. It's 70 slash 72. If you don't get to the 72 part, keep reading. You'll get there eventually. Numbers 11. So, long and nerdy and about five hours of study story short. We've got two significant places in the Old Testament that Jesus is referring back to. The Gentile nations and the elders. Which is to say that here in Luke 10, Jesus knows exactly what he is doing in appointing these others. He is saying, I am the new Moses, and I am taking my people out of slavery, and I am sending these people out to all the nations with the same kind of power and authority that was once reserved for those special elders. We track it. He's infusing this new appointment to this mission with something that is far greater than ever, than, than ever before and far greater than they understood anybody had responsibility for other than the special spiritual elders back here, right? This is why when Luke says in 10 verse 1 that Jesus appointed 72 others, he's saying this mission wasn't just an apostles-only mission. He was sending out non-elders, <laughs> non-apostles, regular old people to go on a mission meant for the whole world. This was a radically important moment in Jesus' ministry where he knows full well he's about to die and he's giving regular old followers like you and me this mission of proclaiming the coming of his kingdom. And parenthetically, in one of those real cool little numbers in the Bible moments. Do the math and guess how many groups of 12 this now makes that Jesus has sent out. One, 12, six, others, seven. If you know your Bible numbers. (laughs) So now we've got the 12 apostles who symbolize the mission to Israel and these six groups of 12 others who symbolize the mission to the Gentiles. Seven groups of 12 to show that Jesus is the fulfillment, the completion of the mission of God to the world. <laughs> I mean, that's, a, that's a Jesus mic drop moment right there. I don't know if you think that's cool. I think that's super cool. The Bible's written by, by the Holy Spirit. <clears throat> so, 
Let's begin to move on a little faster. Verse 1 says this, Luke reporting what is happening. After this, Jesus appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, sort of like an advance team, two by two, in other words, in pairs, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And then he gives him this sort of pep talk, all right? Because he knows this is going to be hard work. This mission is going to involve sacrifice. It's going to feel like risk. And he knows that uh, for them, it's going to mean setting their face toward death to self and death to their own purposes, just like he had submitted himself to the Father's will. Which is to say, there is an urgency and there is a danger involved in this mission. This is a mission that will feel like risk if you're actually on it. Just look at verse 2. He said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Now, when Jesus says the harvest is plentiful, he is saying that there are many people who are ready and waiting to hear the message that Jesus has come to establish his kingdom in their hearts. Let me say that again. When he says the harvest is plentiful, He doesn't just mean there's a lot of work to do. Obviously, he means there's a lot of work to do. (laughs) But it's a specific kind of work. He's saying that there are many people who are ready and who are waiting to hear the message that Jesus has come to establish his kingdom in their hearts. That's what the harvest is plentiful means. It's about harvesting people's souls. It is a spiritual harvest. That's why we say we at First Christian Church are in the business of helping people find and follow Jesus here. That is our mission. And you know why laborers are few? It's because, as we'll see in the coming verses, proclaiming the message of Jesus and harvesting people is hard work because it, being, it means being met with rejection and it de- involves depending on God's provision instead of earthly resources. Proclaiming the message of Jesus and harvesting souls is hard work because it means being met with rejection and it involves depending on God's provision instead of earthly resources. Jesus is preparing them for a mission that feels like a risk because he knows that rejection comes with the gig. And he was about to demonstrate that on his own journey to the cross. So pretty much what Jesus is saying here is, buckle up, man up, get your game face on. Because this is going to be hard. It's going to involve what feels like risk. There will be a temptation to keep your, your face set on everything other than Jerusalem. So that's why he says <laughs> this. Keep reading. He says the harvest is plentiful, the the laborers are few. Therefore, meaning because there are few harvesters, therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Because there are few laborers, because it's going to be hard work, because this is going to involve risk, because this journey of following Jesus is following him to the cross on which he dies, just like it's meant to mean you following him to his cross where you also die. And it's hard work. Pray earnestly 
to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, a couple quick observations here. He says, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Apparently, we should pray for laborers because the work is bigger than us and it requires God's supply. There's actually a lot to that. (laughs) The work is bigger than us, any one of us, and it requires God's supply. So prayer that is earnest acknowledges that truth. If, (laughs) If your work is able to be accomplished by you, your mission is too small and too much about you and is not God's mission. If you're not having to pray for help on your mission, it's because it's an achievable mission for which you already have supply and for which you don't need God's provision. That may be why we're not praying earnestly for harvest of souls. And what we find ourselves praying really earnestly about is all this earthly temporary stuff. Apparently that's not the heart of God for the soul of people who need Him. If you don't sense a desperation to pray for help, It's because your mission can be achieved by your resources. Also, a second little observation here. When you face rejection, which you will because it's God's mission, when you face rejection, try not to take it personally because they're not really rejecting you anyway. There is great freedom in taking on Jesus' mission as opposed to our mission. It may feel like fear, but it's actually something that gives great courage and a sense of, of how relatively important he is in relation to us, if you feel me. There is great freedom from taking on Jesus' mission. Not only do you not have to supply the resources, you don't have to take personally the rejection. So we have two diagnostics right here so far to determine whose mission we are really on. Number one, am I dependent on God's resources for this mission or am I taking rejection personally? Later on in the passage, Jesus says, hey, when when you face rejection, don't even worry. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. So moving on to verse three, lest we never get out of here to watch the World Cup. Go Spain. Another diagnostic here in verse three to determine whose mission uh, we are really on says this, go your way. Behold, I am sending you out. These are fun words. Thanks, Jesus. I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Notice here that Jesus likens going into the harvest field to being sent out as lambs to be devoured by wolves, which is to say, if there's not a sense that you feel this vulnerability of a lamb in your mission, then apparently you're not in the right field and not harvesting souls. Jesus uses the word lambs here (laughs) to refer to how vulnerable you are when you go into this work of people harvest. I mean, he acknowledges up front, this is war, this is battle. It's going to be dangerous. Now, obviously that sounds scary, and it is. Count that cost. (laughs) 
But also notice who is doing the sending. I'm not here sending you. If you reject me, I am sad that you don't get to participate in the mission. That's where I've come to. It's taken me a while in ministry, but that's really where I am. Notice who is doing the sending. You're not going by your own power. I'm not sending you. Jesus says, behold, I am sending you. This is my mission, Jesus says. I'm sending you. This is a dangerous mission. It involves danger. It comes at personal cost. But he says, I'm the one sending you, so it's going to be okay. Another test for us is this. Do I feel like a lamb in the midst of wolves when I think about my life's mission? Do I feel like a lamb in the midst of wolves when I think about my life's mission? Not a fun diagnostic tool for yourself. But it is Bible. Because according to Jesus, those who are on Jesus' mission understand this feeling at some level. That doesn't mean there's security that you can't have. There is security and assurance that comes in Jesus using you for the sake of the gospel. And that reassurance is something that gives into this idea that I'm a lamb in the midst of wolves. It doesn't discount that. So here in, in verse 4, <laughs> Jesus begins to give what, what seems at first like merely practical instruction. And it is practical instruction, but it's more than that. It's a picture of what's involved in being on Jesus' mission and what it looks like when you're in the game and on mission and risking for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom. So it's another diagnostic tool for us. Okay? Look at verse 4 with me. It helps us answer this question of whose mission we're really on. This is what life in the harvest field looks like. Verse 4. He says, carry no money bag, no credit cards, no knapsack, no backpack, which is sad. I just got a new backpack. I really like it. No sandals, which is sad because the ancient Near Eastern roads are not fun. So he says, no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. And then he says, greet no one on the road. <laughs> no money, no overnight bag, no shoes, and, uh, and don't let people along the way distract you. That's what he's saying. Now, the point that Jesus is making here uh, is not, um, the point Jesus is making here is not to just flat out be unreasonable, Right? The point he's making is not about being unreasonable. It's not that you go along the road um, as poor as possible and being a jerk to everybody who comes along, right? Like that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying be poor and be unkind. The point is that we are on a mission that requires complete trust in God's power and God's provision and total focus on God's mission. Now, take those two things so far. The point is we're on a mission that requires complete dependence on God's provision and total focus on God's mission. Take those two. That will result in a purity of message. That's what Jesus is wanting to make sure here. When I send you out, you've got to stay on point. Right? Because this is his mission. It's not your mission. Like, I'm not going to stand up here and say, you know, y'all, I need a private jet 
to minister to thousands around the world because the gospel would move around better, right? The point is, we're on a mission that requires trust in God's provision, total focus on God's mission, and that will result in a purity of message. Hear this, hear this. Only as a beggar who doesn't have earthly power and resources can you convey spiritual power and resources to other beggars? People on mission, people on mission for Jesus are just beggars who know where to find bread. Showing other beggars, this is where I found bread. This is about dependency and urgency and staying on message. If you're not dependent upon God for how you use your resources, whose mission are you on? If you are distracted by earthly comforts, whose mission are you on? And if you are either or both of those, (laughs) and you are obviously self-sufficient and or distracted, no one will believe your message anyway. Right? (laughs) Jesus, I'm just going to sound a little dumb to say, but Jesus is smart. He knows how to bring people along in a way which, which creates harvest workers. Which is to say, Jesus knew how to care for people's souls well. Right? Jesus knew how to care for people's souls well. Simple, straightforward questions uh, to end our time in the Word today. Um, Am I on mission? Does my life feel like there's some risk involved? Uh, Because, friends, some of us have to stop living in denial of the reality of the call of Jesus on our lives. Some of us just have to flat out stop living in denial of the reality of that God's call on your life through Jesus is more important than yours. It's more important than your parents. It's more important than all the stuff that tempts you to other missions. This is about proclaiming the kingdom of God and caring well for the souls of people who were created in God's image with whom God wants to have forever relationship because he created them and he loves them. The heart of God is a missionary heart. Some of us also need to to try to stop manipulating the body of Christ into yet another means of supporting our personal mission of self-sufficiency and earthly gain. That sounds like I'm crazy, but it's absolutely true. The number of people from within the body trying to manipulate it for self is disgusting. And it damages the witness of the body of Christ. Some of us have to stop trying to manipulate the body of Christ into yet another means of supporting our personal mission of self-sufficiency. What we are doing here at First Christian Church is 
opening our hearts to becoming a community of harvest workers who are good at caring for souls. There is no other institution on the planet charged with proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God. There is no other single institution on the planet called to care for people's souls. This is the mission. (laughs) Are you on it? Or are you on some other mission? And here's the thing. You can know. You can know whose mission you're on by asking yourself whether you're on a mission that is about harvest of souls and whether it feels like risk. Those are, those are valid diagnostics according to what we see in the witness of those who have gone before and what Jesus says in sending those out in the New Testament. Ultimately, <laughs> ultimately the Bible communicates the existence of no other mission worth your sacrifice. Let's pray, friends. Lord, forgive us, for we are quite good at turning the resources you've given us into an opportunity for self-aggrandizement. So, Father, we ask for your wisdom to continue to say yes to what you've done in our lives so that others can, can enjoy the freedom the freedom from sin that you alone offer in Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would help us with this. Give us courage and strength to say yes to your mission so that we would know the joy and satisfaction, a lasting peace and contentment in being used by you to see your glory made known. Lord, help us to identify with Christ in that way. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So real briefly, part of why